Let's open our Bibles together to Romans chapter 11. Sorry, Ben, for flustering you. You were just going to say in like two sentences what I was going to take about 10 minutes to say. Steal my thunder. Of course, everyone else may be thanking you if it cuts 10 minutes off the sermon. But I'm going to say it again anyway. We come to the, uh, the hard part of this chapter. I've told you uh, for several weeks you're going to have to put your thinking caps on, and I hope you brought them with you because you're going to need them. But I'm going to let you know up front, I'm not going to answer the questions you want me to answer for two more weeks. But we're going to work toward an answer. So this is uh, tough stuff, but let's dig in. Uh, Romans 11, 25 through 32, I'll read all those verses. For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, this is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy." For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Let's pray. Father, we ask your spirit to be present this morning to open our eyes, to illumine to us the truth of this text. Uh, Father, it's a difficult one. and uh, We may struggle to understand. We may struggle at times to even figure out how this should matter to us today. And Father, I pray that you would help us to, to know it and to apply it. And, uh, Father, fill this place with your Spirit, and above all else, exalt your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Honor Him through our time spent together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Ben mentioned, today is what we call Palm Sunday. The church has called it this, this for many years, and it's taken from the Gospels, and I want to read to you one Gospel account that kind of describes what uh, Palm Sunday is all about. So listen as I read. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, go into the village opposite you. And immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, quote, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. 
The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And what was going on here was something unique and unmistakable. Think back to the other times when someone came to know that Jesus was the Messiah. Remember, he would, he would cast out a demon, or he would heal somebody, or do something miraculous, and maybe it was the demon, or one of the disciples, and they would say, wait a minute, we know who you are now, we understand what this means, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God, you're the Messiah, and Jesus immediately put a gag order on them, remember? Don't tell anyone, keep it to yourself. Yes, yeah, so you saw me come out of the, the phone booth and no, I'm Superman. Shh. Or you saw me come out of the cave and you think, that's Batman. He said, because I'm Batman, right? He said, no, don't tell anybody. I don't want anybody to know. Why? Because it wasn't time yet. But now everything is different. Now it's time for the secrecy to be over. Now as Jesus enters into Jerusalem and everyone acknowledges this is Messiah, this is the Christ, this is the Son of God, he doesn't tell them to be quiet at all. And so to fulfill this prophecy from Zechariah, Jesus comes on a donkey and people are throwing their coats down and cutting down palm branches. This must have been a long, a pretty amazing affair. They didn't have chainsaws. So it would have taken time to go get those branches and drag them out and put them on the way in front of him. And it was a big festive, kind of a, a red carpet experience as Jesus comes riding into the city and everyone is singing and shouting at the top of their lungs, Hosanna, which comes from Psalm 118, Lord, save us. But it wasn't so much an, a request, it was an exhortation, it was an exclamation, this is our Savior, this is our King, this is our Prophet, this is our Deliverer, it's Him. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, it's Him. If you go back and look at Psalm 118, it's unmistakable what they're saying, this is the one. The anointed one, the promised one, our hope, our rescue, our savior, our deliverer, our king. And they led them into the city and everyone was filled with great joy, almost euphoria. The time has come. But it's kind of hard for me to get excited about Palm Sunday. Because in just a few days, these same people are going to have a very different cry. 
the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the scribes, the rabbis, the leaders of the Jews are going to, they're going to raise a rebellion against Jesus. There's a hint of it in another gospel passage, even here, where he comes riding in and they're shouting Hosanna and all they're doing, and the children are singing this, and the Pharisees come up to him and say, Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? They think you're the Messiah. Tell them to be quiet. Remember how Jesus responded? He said, I tell you, if they shut their mouths, the very rocks will cry out because I am the Messiah. Pharisees didn't want to admit that because they wanted a military national leader and savior from the Romans, from Caesar. And so in just a few days, they would plot their secret arrest in collusion with one of Jesus' own disciples, grabbing him in the middle of the night when nobody was around, taking them into their little kangaroo court bringing false witnesses, trying to find something worthy of accusing him of. And that didn't work. So they bring him before Pilate, the Roman governor, and Pilate's ready to let him go. I find no guilt in this man. He's innocent of any wrongdoing that I can find. And you know how I am, Pilate says. I'm good to you Jewish people. And you know my custom every year about this time is to release a prisoner for you. So would you like me to release Jesus to you? And some of these same people who are crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, said, we don't want him. We want Barabbas, a notorious and convicted criminal. Well, what do I do with Jesus then if you don't want me to release him? Crucify him. Crucify him. And they weren't saying it softly like I am. They were shouting with the same vehemence as just a few days before. They were saying, blessed is he and Hosanna. They're saying, crucify him. Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. These are Jewish people. It's hard to get excited, for me at least, about Palm Sunday knowing the hypocrisy and the fickleness of the crowd. Now my question is, why? Why'd they do this? What crime had Jesus committed to deserve this response from his people? All he did was heal all their diseases, drive out all the demonic activity from their cities, Take a man who could never walk in his life and give him the power to walk. Take a man who was blind, who'd never seen the light of day and give him the power to see. Take a person who is deaf and, and give them the gift of hearing. Stop a, a funeral processional where a widow has just lost her son or a, a mother has just lost her daughter. Stop the procession and say, he's not dead. She's not dead. Get up, young child. That's all he'd done. Preach to them the truth of God's word. Shown them how to please the Lord. Those were his crimes. That's what he was guilty of. And they killed him. Why? 
How could they not have seen who he was? How could they not have really believed the words they were saying that this is the Messiah, blessed is this one who comes in the name of the Lord? Well, Paul has been answering that question all the way through Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Remember back? Come back with me on a journey. Back to Romans 9. Paul is asking the question, has God failed the Jews? He's just spent the first eight chapters saying it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, you're all sinners, we're all sinners, everybody is a sinner, we all need forgiveness, and Jesus has come, and if you put your trust in him, if you believe in his death and resurrection, God says, I will forgive you, and that's true across the board, no matter what nationality, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. And he said, there's no distinction, really, between Jews and Gentiles in God's sight. You're all sinners. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory. He even said that the true Jew is not the one, not the person who's circumcised in his body, but the person who's circumcised in his heart by the Spirit of God. That's the true Jew. And even Gentiles can be true Jews. And the Gentiles, he's writing to a Roman church, Gentiles can be adopted into God's family. Gentiles can receive the hope of Jesus Christ. Gentiles can receive every blessing God promised. And then he knows that there's going to be somebody say, well, wait a minute then. God made a lot of promises to Israel. Has he just said, forget all that? Has he failed to keep his promises to the Jews? And Paul says, absolutely not. And then he explains his statement Not all Israel is Israel. Remember? All of you are ethnic Israel, in my analogy. And within ethnic Israel, there is a smaller group of elect Israel. And God's not like me. He doesn't just pick his family to be the elect. We don't know how he chooses, but there's a group, a subgroup within Israel that are his people. And and Paul argues the case that this is always how God has made his decisions. He chooses. He chose Isaac and not Ishmael. He chose Jacob and not Esau. He says, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's my prerogative. And I will harden whom I harden. That too is my prerogative, God says. And then later on in chapter 9, Paul says this is how it's always been and how it's going to be. There's a group of what he called the vessels of mercy, uh, of wrath. It's a very sobering idea. There are people who are going to receive God's wrath, but there are also vessels of mercy, those that God is compassionate toward that receive the forgiveness of Jesus. And then he kind of surprises the Jewish thinker by saying God's vessels of mercy includes Gentiles as well as Jews. He says, now this is not new news. It shouldn't be new news if you've read the Old Testament because all through the Old Testament, God said, I'm going to do this. Remember with Hosea, he said, I'm going to call a people who are not my people. I'm going to call them my people. And a woman who is not my beloved, again, speaking of nations, using a metaphorical image there, a woman who is not my beloved, I'm going to call her my beloved. Those are the Gentiles. Then the question is going to come, well, what about Israel then in this scenario? He says, Israel is pursuing righteousness by the law. 
and they are not righteous by the law. They are unrighteous, and therefore they will not achieve righteousness. Gentiles who weren't even pursuing righteousness are going to come and receive the blessing of Jesus. And then chapter 10, he begins by saying, Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, for Israel, is their salvation. I want them to be saved. He says, I testify they have a zeal for God, but it's an ignorant zeal. And he doesn't mean that pejoratively. He means that's truly they're lacking knowledge. They don't understand that the law was given to get to Jesus. When they read the Old Testament... When they read the law, when they read Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they look trying to find the law so that they can keep the law. But the problem is they don't keep the law. They don't obey God, and they're guilty before Him. But the way you're supposed to read the law, the way you're supposed to read the Old Testament now, is to find Christ there because He is the goal of the law. And remember that, that very difficult section that he quotes? From Deuteronomy, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven or who will descend into the abyss. He explains all that. All that is talking about Jesus, and you don't need to go get Jesus. He's come. You don't need to go get the Messiah and bring him down because he's already come. You don't need to get him and raise him from the dead because he's already risen from the dead. And the, and the prophets proclaimed for years and centuries, whoever believes in the name of the Lord will be saved. Jew or Gentile, doesn't matter. Whoever will confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, whoever will believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, he or she will be saved. Jew or Gentile doesn't matter. And he quotes prophecy after prophesy explaining this, that God's going to turn to the Gentiles. And then he says about the Jews, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a stiff-necked people. And they won't come. I've said, come, come, I will be gracious to you. I will be merciful to you. Come, but they won't. Their necks are stiff. Now, my neck gets stiff a lot. There was a young woman who's studying to be a massage therapist at the Ignite Retreat, and she worked me over good. I haven't cried from pain in 30 years. I almost cried. She stuck her thumb right here. And John Frank was flailing around like a baby. <laughs> Love you, John, wherever you are. I was flailing on the inside. I was just too prideful to let it show. But that's not the kind of stiffness that God's talking about. Stiff-necked like a horse that just will not be led, won't turn the head one way or the other to go where the master wants him to go. And that's what God said about Israel. You just won't do what I tell you to do. So, that prompts the question, God's rejected them, right? Paul says, may it never be. God has not rejected his people. Look, I'm exhibit A, I'm a Jew, Paul says, and I'm a Christian. I have received the blessings of Messiah. And all of the original apostles, the, the, the 11 who believed, they were all Jewish converts. And the first 3,000 Christians were Jewish converts. And, the, and a few thousand after that, the original church started in Jerusalem of Jews who received the benefit of the Messiah. But, Paul goes on to say, comparatively, that was a very small group. It was a remnant. And the vast majority of the Jews rejected Jesus. They said, crucify him. We want nothing to do with him. 
He's not our Messiah. And then Paul says the hard things, that this was all part of God's plan as well. That he gave them a spirit of stupor. He gave them eyes that wouldn't see and ears that wouldn't hear. And he made Jesus a stumbling block so that Israel would trip over him and fall. Then he asked the question, so do they stumble, so to be crushed and to fall permanently? And again, Paul responds, may it never be. The purpose of Israel tripping and falling was so the gospel would go to the Gentiles. Remember that? We talked about that a few weeks ago. And we see that's exactly how it played out in the book of Acts. When the gospel was rejected by the Jews, then Paul and other, other evangelists turned their attention to the Gentiles, and the gospel went toward the ends of the earth. Then Paul is very concerned about the response of these Gentile Christians who are reading this. He doesn't want them to become arrogant. He says, don't become arrogant against the Jews. They were cut off because of their unbelief. And you are part of the kingdom because of your belief. But don't get haughty. If you reject the gospel, he'll cut you off too. And if Israel does not continue in their unbelief, they could be grafted back in. And that brings us to our very difficult verse of verse 25. See, I was stalling, reviewing, hoping Jesus would come back and I wouldn't have to get into this. But alas, he didn't, so let's just dive in. For I do not want you, brothers, to be uninformed of this mystery. Remember, a mystery in the Bible is something that was hidden in the Old Testament, but is now drawn out where everybody can see it. And he has a pastoral concern. I want you to know this so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. And here's the mystery. Here's what was hidden but's now been revealed. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This hardening that God has brought upon Israel where they can't see, the majority of them don't see the truth of Messiah, where they have rejected Jesus, that hardening, he says, is temporary. It will come to an end. That's good news for the, Isra for the Israelites. The question then is when? That's the million dollar question. Everybody wants to know when is this hardening going to be relieved? We already know what's going to happen. We looked at that. If you weren't here for that, for that uh, sermon, go back and look at uh, part two of this uh, portion. All Israel is going to be saved, just as it is written in Isaiah 59 and so on. But when, when is this going to happen? All right, let's get into it. Let's, get, let's do the easy part first. He says, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. That phrase, has come in, that's pretty simple. Entering means you're on the outside and you're coming in. That's what it means, right? Jesus uses this same term uh, when he talks about those who are on the outside of the kingdom. If you are going to enter into the kingdom, you have to receive the kingdom like a little child. In another place, he said, I am the door. And if any of the sheep are on the outside are going to get into the, to the pen, into the, uh, the place that has a nice gate and protection and green pasture, if you're going to enter in, you've got to come through Jesus. He's the door. The idea of entering in or has come in means you're currently on the outside. You've got to come on the inside. Everybody with me? That's pretty easy. So what is it that has to come in? 
what's on the outside that he has yet to enter, and it's this phrase, the fullness of the Gentiles. The fullness of the Gentiles. What in the world does that mean, and when does that happen? And you're supposed to say, that's what we're asking you, right? Well, one interpretation, and I would say it's the most popular interpretation of our day, and there are many, 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 many people who believe this. Many, many people probably in this room who believe this. It's a very plausible and possible interpretation is given to us in actually the NIV. If you have the NIV, it says this. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. So the idea is that this hardening will be lifted when that number of Gentiles is complete. And so historically, it kind of goes like this. God turned his attention to Israel for a long time. Then they rejected Jesus, and now God has turned his attention to the Gentiles for a period of time. And we would say it's been at least 2,000 years. And at some point, God has a number of Gentiles who are going to come to Christ. And when that last Gentile becomes a believer, then God is going to turn his attention away from the Gentiles and back to the Jews, and thus all Israel will be saved and so on. And so the, the, the hope is that we take the gospel on our missionary endeavor to the ends of the earth till that last Gentile comes to Christ, and then the Jews can be relieved of their hardening, and many of them will come to Christ. Some would say all of them will come to Christ, and then the end will come. Again, a very popular view, uh, scholarly and at the popular level, and uh, you may hold that view, it may be what you've been taught, it may be what you believe, and there's, there are good reasons for it. It's not satisfying to me for two reasons. Number one is the meaning of the word full number. NIV is the only English translation I know of that translates it this way, full number. I didn't actually look at them all, but it's, it's the most popular one that translates it this way. So if you have another version that translates it that way, then you can let me know later. If it means full number, this is the only place in the New Testament it means full number. Everywhere else, it has a, quanti- or a qualitative meaning, not a quantitative. It's not talking about how many, how many numbers, but a, a quality of something. Everywhere else, it's translated something like fullness or fulfillment rather than a number. He's already used the word in this context, and it doesn't mean full number. Look back with me at verse 12. I told you you need your thinking caps. Everybody got your thinking caps on? I know this is not the most exciting stuff, but... We'll get to excitement when we get to chapter 12. Verse 12, now if their transgression, the there is referring to Israel, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness be? I don't know why the NAS doesn't remain consistent here, but that's the same word, pleroma, fullness. So notice what he's saying. The Jews have committed a transgression. They have failed at something. And he says that failure, that transgression is riches for the world, the Gentiles. Well, he's obviously meaning that when the Jews rejected Jesus, they have failed to receive the righteousness of Christ. 
That has become riches for the world, meaning the gospel has now gone out to the ends of the earth. That's what we already talked about. So the Jews rejected Jesus. The Jews failed there. That's become a wonderful thing for the Gentiles as the gospel has gone out. Then he says, how much more then will their fullness be? The Jews, their fullness. Well, what's the contrast? What's the opposite of transgression and failure here? It would be acceptance of the gospel. If their rejection of the gospel, their failure to receive Christ is riches for the world, how much more will their acceptance of the gospel be riches? Follow me? So the contrast there is between what Israel rejecting Christ and accepting Christ. A parallel thought is in verse 15. For if their rejection, that's God rejecting them, if their rejection is reconciliation, reconciliation of the world, the Gentiles, what will their acceptance by God be but life from the dead? They're hardened. He's already said they're hardened against the gospel. If they are accepted now by God, that's like life from the dead. That's how miraculous this will be because God has hardened them. He's given them a spirit of stupor. So in this context, the fullness of Israel would be God accepting them and them coming to Christ. You see how the emphasis is not on number? It's just on the fact of them, instead of rejecting Christ, coming to Christ and God accepting them. I think that's the same meaning Paul has in verse 25. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the Gentiles are accepted by God and they accept Christ. Rather than a number, it's that the kingdom has clearly been manifested by Gentiles in contrast to Jews. Which doesn't have anything to do with thousands of years later necessarily. In fact, in a moment, I'm going to argue that, well, no, I've given it away. Now I'm stealing my own thunder. The second reason that full number idea is not satisfactory, at least to me, is verse 31. Paul says, So these also, speaking of the Jews, now have been disobedient. The Jews are disobedient. They've rejected the gospel. That because of the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they, Jews, also may, when? Now be shown mercy. Now is a time referent, right? Seems to me that Paul thinks this hardening is going to be relieved in his day. They've been cut off, they've been hardened, just as you Gentiles were hardened. But just as you have now received mercy, so they also may now receive mercy. I think he expects this to happen in his day. Now, if that's true, then the Gentile acceptance by God has to have happened in his day. Guess what? It did. Who's he writing to? He's writing to Rome. Rome was the 
headquarters, the chief and capital city of the Roman Empire, a Gentile empire. There's a church there. Think about all the other letters that Paul wrote. They weren't Jewish centers. We don't have the epistle to Judea or Jerusalem. We have Corinth, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica, Ephesus, did I get them all? Galatia, that's a whole region of Gentile cities. He went to Athens. He wants to go to Rome, and he's planning to go from Rome to Spain. The church, when Paul is writing this, is predominantly and overwhelmingly predominantly Gentile. Paul even says this in Colossians 1. It says, Because of the hope laid up for you, Gentiles in Colossae, in heaven, in which you previously heard in the word of truth the gospel, which has come to you in Colossae, just as in all the world, also is constantly bearing fruit. Now, we're not supposed to take that to mean it came all the way over here to America necessarily. It may have. But from his vantage point, when everything started in Jerusalem, he almost single-handedly is responsible for the gospel taking root all over the Mediterranean Sea throughout the Roman Empire. From his perspective, to say the gospel had penetrated the world of Gentiles would not be an overstatement. Comparatively, there were very few Jews and a whole lot of Gentiles in the kingdom at that point. I think that's what he means. In Romans chapter 10, we've already seen where Paul quotes that Psalm 19. Remember Psalm 19 that says, The heavens declare the glory of the Lord, and, and the earth, uh, skies proclaiming the what? Work of his hands. Thank you. you. You can't miss the glory of the Lord. That's a good helpmate right there. You can't miss the glory of the Lord because the heavens are declaring it. You look up in the sky and it says, God is glorified. And you look at plants and animals and trees and they all scream, God is glorified. And he said, in the same way, the gospel has been preached to every creature on earth. Now that's a bit of an exaggeration. We call it hyperbole. But why can he make that point? Because the gospel had gone out all over the place and the Gentiles had come in to the church. God clearly accepted the Gentiles. We see this through the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit, those of you who remember back to when we walked through the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on people, it's always when a new group is being accepted by God. We don't see every time the gospel is preached the, the Spirit being poured out. There are unique places and times. That's why you shouldn't build your theology of the Holy Spirit from the book of Acts. Because on one hand, you have some people, the Spirit does not come down upon them until the apostles show up and pray for them and lay their hands on them. We shouldn't draw from that that the Holy Spirit's not going to come until somebody places their hand on you. On another occasion, even before Peter is finished preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit comes down on them. You shouldn't draw the conclusion that you don't have to preach the gospel, the Holy Spirit will just start working. No, that's not the point. The point is, the Holy Spirit was poured out from Judea, to Samaria, to the God-fearing Greeks, and finally to the Ephesians. 
the Gentiles, the full-on Gentiles who knew nothing about Judaism. And by the time you get to the end of the book of Acts, the vast majority of the church is Gentile, not Jewish. I think that's what Paul's getting at. That in his day, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in so that now in his day, not ours, in his day, the hardening upon Israel was coming to an end. Now, I'm going to lay all my cards out on the table, but because you don't want to stay another three hours, I will wait to subsequent sermons to try to prove this further, but I think I can. Yes, Lord? Shall I go another three hours? Okay. God said yes. Sorry. That visitor's luncheon is going to have to go a long way like the loaves and the fishes maybe. When I went through Isaiah in verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written, we covered the first three phrases because those will all come from Isaiah 59. The deliverer will come from Zion he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with him. All direct quotes from Isaiah 59. The next phrase, when I take away their sins, is not from Isaiah 59. It's from Isaiah 27. Next time, well, next week we'll deal with the resurrection and Easter, but in two weeks, we're going to look at that phrase in its context in Isaiah 27, and I'm going to begin building my case that the hardening against Israel has been lifted. I'm going to just lay all my cards on the table. If that's true, that's good news for the Jews. That means they have the same opportunity to respond to the gospel as anybody else. They're not hardened. They're not cut off any longer. They're not set apart by God and rejected we should have missionary efforts pursuing Israel as strongly as anybody else because they need it as much as anybody else. I'm going to try to prove that to you over upcoming weeks. So, so what? Is this just a theological something to wrestle around about and disagree on and fight about when we get done talking about election and some of those kinds of debates? No, it's important. It's in the Bible, it's important. We do need to be very careful and, hum and humble about this. This is prophecy. Whenever you're dealing with prophecy, you need to be careful because it's hard to predict and understand the fulfillment. So I'm going to try to persuade you. If I don't end up persuading you, that's okay. We can still be friends as far as I'm concerned. Hope as far as you're concerned, we can still be friends. But I want to go back to where I started. One thing we learn about God and ourselves through Romans 9 through 11, and even back to Palm Sunday, the original Palm Sunday, is that the reason you and I are here today is because of God's compassion and grace. Why are we in here, and why are we singing, singing and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why are we going to gather on Friday and, and, and express together our belief that Jesus is the Messiah, that he died on the cross for our sins? Why are we going to proclaim together next Sunday morning that Jesus is risen? 
Because God in His grace and compassion has opened our eyes to see. He's diffused that quickening ray to grab a hold of our hearts so that instead of rejecting Christ, we say, I need a Savior. And He's done it such that we're not going to be fickle. And we're not going to, in four or five days' time, say, crucify Him, crucify Him, crucify Him. We're going to remain steadfast because He's opened our hearts to understand it's not about national freedom. Jesus didn't come to make America a better place. He didn't come to fix all of our political and financial problems. He didn't come to fix all of our family and relational problems. He does not promise that this life is going to be happy and fun. In fact, He promised the opposite, that we will all have affliction in this world. But what He came to do was to free us from our greatest enslavement, our enslavement to sin, our enslavement to shame, our position before God where we deserve His wrath. And He has said that everybody who puts their trust in Jesus Christ will be entirely and eternally forgiven of every sin they ever commit. That's good news. And even if we have trouble figuring out how it all works out historically with the Jews and the Gentiles and all that, and we have fun discussions about that, at the end of the day, all that really matters for us is that He loves you and He loved me enough to send His Son to the cross and to draw us into His kingdom and say, you're mine, I forgive you, I love you, you have eternal life with me forever. And that's what we're really about. That's what the church is really about. That's what this weekend is about. That's what next weekend is going to be about. That's what every weekend is about. That's what every day of our life is to be about, the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our King. Music team, come up. And I'm going to ask everyone to stand. I'm going to pray. Stand up now. Go ahead. You can do that. And we're going to sing about the love and the grace of God for His people. Let's pray together and give Him thanks. There is something going on around here. I'm not sure which spirit that is, but... Father, we do give You praise. And we ask for Your Spirit's help to discern these truths. But above all else, even if we don't understand prophetic things, and even if we disagree on some of these things... May we be brothers and sisters in Christ who are bound together by your love, by the gospel that you incomprehensibly would punish your son instead of us. That you, Lord Jesus, would come to this earth and take upon yourself the wrath of God so that we will, won't have to. Father, I don't understand that kind of love, but I believe it. And my brothers and sisters in this room believe it, and so we proclaim together of your amazing love. And Father, I pray that there's anyone here today, maybe it's a visitor, maybe it's someone who's been around a long time, 
who right now feels the conviction of their sin, that they would call upon the name of the Lord Jesus for salvation. That today would be a day that they remember forever. Father, receive our song in praise of Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen.